Well, good morning, everybody. I want to remind you, um, as we draw closer and closer to the celebration of our 75th anniversary, that it is coming, and I, I hope that you are making plans to be here. We'll be launching this season of celebration in two weeks from today on the 18th of September. It's going to go until the 20th of November. There's going to be a lot of things happening all through uh, this season. Uh, We're going to be celebrating together what God has done across uh, the decades of our church's existence. We're going to be celebrating what he is doing now, uh, today, in these days in which we're living. And also we're going to be dreaming about uh, some of the great things that we believe God will be doing uh, in the future that is ahead of us. So we really hope that you will make it a priority all through this fall uh, to be here every single Sunday that you can uh, as we see together how good God has been uh, to us here at Southwinds Church. We are continuing today our study through Paul's letter to Titus, the study we're calling The Good Life. And we come today to the passage that is at the heart of the message of, of Titus. This is the good life. This is how we can know the good life, experience the good life. And this is the passage uh, that I encouraged you on week one of this series uh, to memorize in, you know, for yourself. And I hope you've been working on that. If you haven't, maybe you weren't here that Sunday, there's Still time to do that. It's such a rich passage. These verses are so beautiful. And I want to start uh, this morning by us reading them uh, out loud, all of us together. So if you will join me, we'll be reading those uh, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, Titus is all about the good life. And today, what we're gonna see is that grace is at the heart of the good life. In fact, God's word tells us that we cannot know the good life apart from grace. And I think anyone who's been around here for very long would likely agree with that statement. We, we, we teach here that we are saved by grace alone. One of our, our core convictions is that our relationship with God is, is by his grace in no way comes about uh, by uh, our works, by anything good that we uh, have done. We believe that God is a God of grace. But here's the thing. Connecting that belief to our daily lives is not always that simple. Anybody want to say amen to that? That is exactly why Paul is writing this letter. Paul knows that that we can sometimes find ourselves struggling. You know, over over time that I've been here, I've had conversations with some of you who are struggling with addictions. And, And you think, you know what, if I just go to church and if I just do the things, if I follow the rules, everything will be okay. And it's not always. You still sometimes feel trapped. 
Some of you come here this morning with a very difficult past and you have come to know Jesus. You are trusting him for your forgiveness, your salvation, your eternal life and you're reading the Bible and you're, you're praying and, and you're serving and a lot of people who know you, they, they look at you and see you as a, a role model. But if you were to get really honest, you would say you don't have much joy in your life right now. You, you struggle sometimes with, with anger. You find yourself complaining and and truth is, you've been giving in to some temptations that you thought were in your past. Some of you, you would say that you've had real times of growth in your life, but the truth is, recently, quite honestly, you're, you're, you're plateaued spiritually. Some of you, you've been Christians for years, and here's the reality, you've settled. You say, it is what it is. I'm not really probably ever gonna really fully change, so I'm just giving up. And if any of us, we, we find ourselves in, in places like these, the, the question is, is there hope? Is there hope for people who feel plateaued or helpless or trapped? Some of you, you're, you're not Christ followers and you look around sometimes at people who go to church and you wonder, does this Christian thing actually change people at all? This passage that we have just read shows us very clearly what God wants to do in our lives, what he wants to do right now. And Paul also tells us just as clearly how God wants to do it. Does following Jesus actually bring change? Paul's answer is Yes, and he shows us in these verses not only what, what needs to change, he shows us how God changes us, how God gives us the power to change. And as you're gonna see, it is all about grace. From beginning to end, it is always all about grace. And so I wanna tell you ahead of time, you don't need to give up. You need to experience grace, and you need to learn how grace works in your life. So what is grace? Well, you've heard this definition before. It's always good to hear it again. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It is a gift we don't deserve. It is a gift we will never deserve. And we never stop needing God's grace. You know, scholars of world religions tell us there are about 4,200 religions in the world. And the difference between Christianity and every other religion can be summarized in this word, Grace. You know, I told you back in week one that, that Paul is telling us this. He's telling Titus and through Titus us that it is the gospel. It is the gospel that, that creates, the gospel that sustains the good life. And it is the gospel that transforms us. It is the gospel that trains us. So what we're gonna see this morning in Titus 2 is that Paul is not simply telling us what to change or what change looks like. He's telling us how change happens, how it can actually come about in our lives. And, and the language that he uses here was very familiar to these people in Crete. It was very familiar uh, to people all across uh, the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Paul is using uh, language that everyone then would have known and it had to do with being a good citizen. It had to do with, with becoming civilized. It had to do with being a virtuous person or what we today would call a good person. It had to do with the good life. And Paul says, grace teaches us. 
He says grace teaches us. A, a more helpful translation, and I'll explain more about this later, would be that, that grace trains us. Paul says to know the good life, you have to know grace, and you must allow that grace to teach you and train you. So what is it about grace that teaches us? What is it about grace that changes us? Let me just ask you, have you ever thought of connecting the idea of grace to teaching? Grace to training. Many of us never have. Well, I hope you will understand it more clearly today. Paul gives Titus three truths about grace, and they not only change our minds, but they also can change our hearts. We, we need all three of them. Here's the first one. Number one, Paul says, grace redeems your past. Let me just ask you, what comes to your mind when you think about your past? And here's another question to kind of focus it for you. If everyone in this room right now suddenly knew everything about your past, what would you do if it was all up here on the screen? It was quiet before, it's even quieter now, right? <laughs> in the first service, somebody said, run. Many of you were thinking that, right? You didn't say it, but that's what you were thinking. So what do you think about when you think about your past? Do you have feelings of shame or regret? Maybe it's bitterness or resentment. Maybe it's that I'm a failure. Maybe it's about things you've done. Maybe it's about things that have been done to you. See, we, we wrestle with the past, don't we? It's this burden that weighs us down and some of us respond to this by trying to bury it, to pretend it didn't happen. Some of us try to escape our past by, by just getting a new job, by uh, moving to a new city, by making new friends, you know, buying a new house. We're always moving, we're always changing and the reason really is we're just trying to escape our past. Some of you have told me that you're tormented by your past before Jesus and you just long to find freedom and it's always been that way for you. And it's always been that way for people in this world. Back in the first century in Crete and, and really all across that uh, Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire, people were longing for, for some kind of deliverance, for some kind of freedom from guilt and, and pain and sorrow. And the way most people thought that they could find freedom was through pleasing all of the different gods of the day. And the idea was if you just show yourself to be worthy enough, if you just get your act together, maybe the gods, maybe the gods would be pleased with you and then they would favor you and then they would deliver you. They would, they would give you some blessings in your life. And, and you know, things really haven't changed. So many people today are trying to please and placate the gods of our day trying to gain their favor, thinking that if they would just find that favor, then they would experience deliverance, then they would know the freedom that, that they are longing for. Now, the word that they used back then to describe that deliverance was this word that we see in, in verse 11. It's this word appearing. Sometimes it's translated unveiling, See, what's the one thing that will, that will rescue me? Uh, this word appearing is the word from which we get our word epiphany. And the root idea of the word in the Greek text was of, of a curtain that's being opened up on a stage and, and it reveals something that was previously hidden. 
And everyone was waiting for the appearing, waiting for that day when, when that appearing would come and it would solve all of the world's problems. And a lot of people still think like that, right? They think that for the world, they think that for themselves. And I wanna ask you, what is it in your heart? What is it that you are waiting for? What do you think that, you know, right now, like today, if, if blank happens, you, you fill in that blank, then everything's gonna be okay. If I just get the girl, if I just get the guy, if I just get that job, if I just get that house, it'll all be good. It'll be good. If I could just find that thing I'm looking for, that's the appearing, the epiphany that your heart longs for, and you think if I just have it, I'm okay. It's all right. See, Paul is, is telling us that the problem is far worse than you could ever imagine. The Bible says we're not just in a helpless circumstance, we are in a hopeless condition. The Bible says that we are enslaved to sin that our hearts are radically self-centered, that we are rebels against God, that we are prisoners behind the bars of our guilt, and we are living in the hell of separation from God. But Paul is also saying that an appearance has happened. God's grace has appeared. That's what it says in verse 11. He, he writes, Paul does, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. You say, what is the grace of God that has appeared? The answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's grace. And Paul says he came and he appeared to offer salvation to all people, to deliver us from our slavery to sin, to set us free from the prison of darkness and guilt and shame. He came to save us. And maybe I could sum it up like this for us in this way. All that all of us need, it's already happened. All that we all need, it's already happened. You don't have to wait. Now, you need to be reminded that God has always been full of grace, even before Jesus came. It's not, like, it's not like God, you know, he was cranky for thousands of years, but one day he woke up on the right side of the bed and he said, I think I'll be gracious today. That, that's not what, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the grace of God that has always existed has now been made publicly available to all people. God revealed his grace in the person of Jesus and this is grace, this is the gospel, this is good news. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He rose from the dead to prove that he had defeated sin. It's the gospel, it's the good news, it's grace. And this good news is for everyone. See, God offers his grace to you. And it's not on the basis of what you have done. There is nothing in you that would ever cause God to offer you his grace. He offers you his grace because of who he is. Out of his love, out of the fullness of his goodness, he offers grace. And we receive that grace, the Bible says, when we believe when we believe in Jesus and, and we trust in him to forgive our past, he redeems our past. And I want you to notice he redeems all of it. All of it. You know, God gives us total forgiveness, all by grace. Some of you need to hear that because God doesn't say, like some of us think, yeah, you know what, I kind of like you, so I'm gonna forgive 87% of your sins by my grace. You can work out the rest on your own. You should think that's a good deal. I'm giving you a significant discount. God doesn't 
say that. You don't have to work to complete the deal. God forgives all our sins. And so I'm gonna come back to this past thing again. I want, I want to ask you, what is it from your past that haunts you? God in his grace has appeared and he has freely forgiven all of your sins in Jesus, all of your rebellion, all of those times you hurt someone, you used someone, you damaged someone, you took from someone, everything in your life that you are so ashamed of that you've never told anyone about, everything, God has redeemed you. So don't let the past harm you. The past is forgiven. Instead of letting uh, the, the past haunt you or harm you, let your past help you. Let your past help you remember how good God's grace is that he has poured out on you. In fact, you could write it down like this, and some of you need to take this. Every time you think of your past, it is an opportunity to thank God for his grace. Every time. And you know, I think many of us know this, but maybe today you've come and you're in this place where you've sort of forgotten its beauty. See, every time the past sneaks up on you, you can remember that you are redeemed. Now, in a moment, Paul's gonna tell us we need to renounce certain things. and We need to turn from certain things, but, but I want you to understand we can only renounce the things for which we have experienced forgiveness. And so we have to start here if we don't see that our sins have been forgiven through the cross, we will not have the power to renounce those sins. Our motives for saying no to sin will, will be wrong. And so you need to know, this is where it all begins, this work of grace in your life. You need to know that God in Christ has redeemed your past. Now, a lot of people think of grace and they think grace is what happens like at the start of the Christian life. And like after you've experienced grace, you move on to like deeper stuff. And I wanna tell you today, if you in any way think that, you're wrong. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible says you never move on from grace. The Bible says you only move deeper into grace. So grace is not just for your past. Grace is also for your present. And that's the second thing that Paul says. He says grace trains you in the present. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So, so God's grace saves us from our sin in the past. It trains us for godliness in the present. And the NIV, the text there, it translates this as teaches us. Uh, that is a correct translation. But you could also translate it as trains us. And I think that captures the idea better. Grace trains us. And Paul says that because grace has appeared in Jesus, growth is now reality for us. Growth can happen. And so he wants to train us for that. How does he train us? Well, there's two things. Maybe you noticed when we read the verse, grace trains us to say no to some things. It also trains us to say yes to some things. Paul says grace, it, it trains us to say no to ungodliness. You say, what's ungodliness? Well, you could talk about a lot of things, but it boils down the meaning of this word to just living your life for yourself apart from God. And you can do that in a number of ways. Some people live an ungodly life through open immorality, through lots and lots of obvious sin, through evil. But then there's other people, a lot of them, who do that 
by living this outwardly nice and respectable life that everyone looks at and admires, but they're living this life in a way that ignores God. They're living their life for themselves. And so you can be a nice, godly, respectable, good person that everybody likes, and yet you can be completely ungodly because you're living your life for yourself. Worldly passions uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It's where we indulge our flesh. Uh, we indulge the actions and the attitudes that, you know, of our, our worldly system that is opposed to God. In First John, uh, that letter, it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You know, we live in a culture today that, that tells us to express our passions, right? You know, you express yourself. That's, that's like the heart of living according to our culture. Follow your heart, do what you feel. And there was a lot of that in Crete. That's how you get, as it says in chapter one, verse 12, to be liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. There's a lot of people living this kind of life in our culture today, and Paul says we've gotta say no to all of these things, but here's a problem, and it's a real problem, and maybe you've never thought about this as a problem before, but you need to, because it goes like this. You can say no to ungodliness in the wrong way. And maybe you're thinking right now, what do you mean? Well, let me give you some examples. You can say no to ungodliness because I'll look bad. You can say no to ungodliness because you think I'm gonna be excluded from that social circles I wanna belong to. I, you know, I wanna be there, those people accept me. You can say no because then won't, God won't bless me. And you can say no <laughs> because then I'll hate myself in the morning. I'll just have bad self-esteem. And I want you to understand as you look at all of those ways of saying no, can you see that the motives underneath all of those expressions of saying no are, are expressions of fear and pride of the very things that lead to sin. When you say no in that way, here's what's happening. You are just using your heart's self-centered impulses to keep you compliant to the external rules without really changing the heart itself. You are not really doing any of those things out of love for God. You are using God. You're using God to get the things that you want, whether it's self-esteem or popularity or prosperity. And what that means when you do that is that your deepest joys, your deepest hopes are resting in these other things and not in God. Just think about one example, lying. Lying. Most people are honest out of either fear or pride. Take fear. They're afraid, and when they do their income taxes, that the IRS with its 87,000 new agents who are carrying guns evidently now will find and catch them and send them to prison. That's why they're honest on their taxes. The truth is if they thought they could get away with it, they wouldn't tell the truth, right? And some of you are nervous right now because you're hoping you get away with it and you haven't been telling the truth maybe. But you can do the right thing out of just fear. You can also do the right thing uh, out of pride. You can say, I don't wanna be like those terrible people who lie. 
I'm better than they are. And so either way, whether it's pride or fear, you can be an incredibly truthful person, but the problem is your heart won't change. It, it doesn't change. All these motivations that are wrong, they, they don't address the fundamental cause of evil in our hearts, which is our heart's radical self-centeredness. We aren't doing the right things for the right reason because of God, because of his grace. We're just doing him for ourselves. See, Paul never tells anyone to get their act together. Paul never tells anyone to try to change themselves. So, So how does Paul think change happens? Well, he says it's by the grace of God. He says that's how you live the the good life, by the grace of God, by by knowing and living out of the reality that God has loved you, that God has forgiven you, that God has rescued you and redeemed you. God's grace, his loving acceptance of you, that is the motivation to change your life. And by the way, this this is why grace can never mean what some people think, which is, hey, If God's gonna forgive me, I can do whatever I want. If grace is what God saves me by, I can just live my life, send my brains out. At the end of life, I'll just ask God to forgive me. It'll all be good. And I just wanna remind you, if you think that in any way, just a small one, if you have ever rationalized sin by thinking to yourself, well, well, God will forgive me, then just think about what that says about the state of your heart. And here's the thing. I'm gonna pause right here for a moment. I have a question to ask you, okay? This is one of these like moments of truth, honest confession, and I always like to remind you you're in God's house and God is watching, all right? Are you ready for the question? Do you know how you're supposed to answer already, right? Here's the question. Have, any, have you ever in your life at any time said no to ungodliness for any of the reasons we have been talking about. If you ever rationalize sin thinking God will forgive you, if you have ever done that at least one time in your life or you're sitting next to someone who you know has, please raise your hand right now. And the truth is, we all have, right? All God's people say, We all have, we've all done these things. And what I'm trying to help you see is that when we do that, we are not living out of grace. Let me give you an example. If you think that you can use God's grace to rationalize sin, imagine that you're married and imagine that your spouse one day says, you know, I love you so much. I will always forgive you even if you're unfaithful. And you say, great, there's someone at work I've just been dying to have sex with. I mean, what does that say about the state of your heart? See, if you have truly experienced grace, you say no to the thing that grieves God's heart. I mean, why Why would you willingly embrace something that Jesus died for? See, grace is never a license to sin. Grace is always a motivation for love. So to see change in our lives, what we must do is allow this gospel of grace to train us every day. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. You might even say the Holy Spirit is our our personal grace trainer. Some of you in our church are personal trainers. Some of you have personal trainers. Well, all of us have the Holy Spirit as our personal grace trainer. 
And he is with us every single day. And he is always coaching us. He is always teaching us when we have to make a decision. And that means you don't need to say no to something in the wrong way. When you need to say no to something, the Holy Spirit will come to you and he will say, don't, don't say no now because you wanna look good. He'll say, say no because you remember that Jesus loves you and he has died for you and he has redeemed you and you belong to him. That's why you say no. The Holy Spirit will say, you don't need these things in your life to look good to other people, or to be accepted in social circles. So say no to them you know, because you have God. The Holy Spirit will say, don't say no to something like health or, or that will... That, so that you will have health or so that you will get wealth. Don't, don't say no to get those things because that isn't why Jesus died for you. He died for you because he, he loves you and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and he points us to the gospel of grace. He's our personal grace trainer and when we live in that, what happens is that grace changes the way we make decisions. We get trained to make the right decisions for the right reasons. And then what happens out of that is that grace changes what you love. Grace gives you, as the old theologians used to talk about it, it gives you new affections. See, the more we're trained by the gospel, the more our hearts are are, are changed, we begin to love the right things. You know, a lot of us, we... We just live our lives out of so much neediness, right? I mean, nobody wants to say I'm needy, but we really struggle with it, all of us do, in so many ways. It's like, I just, I I need to be needed. I I need to be seen a certain way. I need to be accepted in certain groups. I need people to see me as successful. Like, like I need them to look up to me and, and admire me. But when we know that we're already accepted by God, that God knows us and God delights in us and God rejoices over us, that God sings over us, as it says in Zephaniah, because we are his children, because we are in his family, because of Jesus. When we know that, it changes everything. And see, you can, you can try. You can try to say no to your wrong desires by thinking about how bad they are, but here's the thing. Have you noticed this in your life? That doesn't work. It just doesn't work. How many of you can think back, maybe even recent past, maybe even this last week where you knew something was wrong before you did it, you knew it was wrong while you were doing it, and you really knew it was wrong after you did it, but you did it anyway, right? And how many of us know we've done that time and time and time and time again, just knowing that something is wrong doesn't give us the power to overcome it. We need something more. We need the power of a new kind of love, a new kind of affections. Instead of just saying no to something because it's bad, what we need is to say yes to a greater love. In other words, we need to love the right things more. And that means you need to truly see grace. You see, when you see the beauty of Jesus. You, you see who he is, how wonderful he is. You see how, how lovely what he has done truly is for you. Then you begin to see the beauty of the life that Jesus is calling you to. And what happens is this. This is so important. Your, your old desires, they don't just go away. 
but they get overpowered by something greater. They get, they get overrun and overridden by a new and greater and better love. That's what Jesus does, and that's what he does by his grace. You might call it the beauty of a better story. That's what brings change in your heart. And you know what, over the years, I've been your pastor for almost 20 years now. I have seen this happen in this church. I have talked to so many of you who have told me so many of your stories. I, I talked one time to someone who was addicted to pornography for years. And some of you are addicted right now and maybe the truth is you've never admitted it, you've never confessed it, you've never told anyone, but God sees it, God knows, God knows what's going on. You need to come clean, you need to deal with that today receive his forgiveness today. But I was speaking to a guy who told me his journey of transformation, how God freed him. And he said it wasn't just because like he disconnected the internet. That might help. That might be what you need to do sometimes. But it was far more than that. He said it was the power of a new love. He said God taught him how to view women with dignity, how to see them in the light of what the Bible says. He said, I began to understand who God had made me to be as a man, that I'm not to be a predator. I'm not to be someone who uses and abuses. I'm a Christ follower. I'm to live out of truth and and love. And he said it was this vision, it was knowing, knowing what God had done for me, knowing what God had made me, seeing what God wanted for me. He said that was what gave me the power to move beyond my slavery. I've talked with countless people who were addicted to various substances. And they, they might go to CR, you know, and get in groups where they can talk about it. But what they, where they really found ultimate freedom, they've said, was in the power of a new love. In, in, in realizing that God doesn't just call them to be sober. God calls them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God calls them to be under the influence of a power that is so much greater, so much better, so much lovelier than anything else in all the universe. The power, the love of the Holy Spirit. See, I've spoken to people trapped in bitterness and when they, when they get through their bitterness, when they get free, they, they, they look back and see how they were free from their bitterness. And it was by seeing how wonderful and beautiful and peaceful the life of joy and grace and giving forgiveness really is. It wasn't that their resentments just went away. It was that their new loves and their new desires overpowered them. Grace trains us. God works in us both to will and to do, it says in Philippians 2. How does he do that? Well, he does it by showing us the beauty of Jesus. He does it by showing us the truth. And here's what happens. When when grace trains you, it restructures the motivations of your heart. You're, You're driven by different loves than you were before, different desires than you were before, and that's where you find the desire and the power to say yes. And it's all because Jesus is really that good. See, when you see Jesus as your beauty, when you see Jesus as the source of all joy and goodness, life begins to change 
And it is grace that teaches us that. It is grace that changes us. It is grace that, that trains us to say yes to Jesus. And that's what the last part of verse 12 is about. Paul says we, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those are the things we are to say yes to. And what he's pointing out here is that grace is comprehensive. He's, he's telling us that grace changes everything. Think about these, these three uh, words here, self-control, upright, and godly. These address every area of our lives. And, and here's what, it is, what I'm talking about. Uh, grace changes the way you relate to yourself. That's self-control. Grace changes the way you relate to others. That's upright. Grace changes the way you relate to God. That's godly. So, so grace changes the way you relate to yourself. Self-control happens um, because you love things you didn't love before. It's the power of a new love. You can control yourself now because you begin to realize that true fulfillment and satisfaction is, is found in glorifying God, not in gratifying every desire I have. You're made to glorify God. Upright means that grace changes the way you relate to each other. Upright just means you're a person of integrity in relation to other people. You do what is right. You, you love your neighbors, and it's not because you want them to think you're a good person. It's because what God has done for you through his grace you deal with other people differently. You think God has been so kind to me. I need to be kind to other people. You think God has been so patient with me. I will be patient with others. You realize God reached out to me when I was running away, when I was pushing him off from myself in anger. So I'm gonna reach out to people even when they push me away. It changes the way you see others. Then third, godliness means grace changes the way you relate to God. Again, it's just living in this grace, knowing that God's favor to you is undeserved, that he lavishly gives it to you just because he's good and that's who he is. That just pushes you to run toward him, not to run away from him, right? I mean, you know, in the past when we got caught in sin, what did we do? We, we hide, we run away. But when we know we have a gracious father. We don't have to do that. It gives my heart power to go back to him and run toward him to receive his grace once again. I, I would just sum it up this way. You do not obey God to earn God's love. You obey God to enjoy God's love. So grace, uh, grace takes care of your past Grace trains you in the present. And then finally, grace secures your future. Notice what Paul says, verses 13 and 14. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself of people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And again, uh, people in Crete, like the people across the Roman Empire, they believed that one day at the end of time, there would be this like ultimate appearing, this ultimate unveiling, and it would change everything. It would transform the world. And they were just waiting for this day, waiting for that day when someone would come and finally make everything right in the world. You remember that song, John Mayer from a few years ago, we're just waiting, waiting for the world to change. People have been waiting, waiting for the world to change for a long time. And do you know what Paul says? 
about that. He says, only God can make that happen. Only God can give you that hope. And he says here that there's gonna be another appearing, a second appearing. He, he, he says that there are two appearings of Jesus. We see two in, in this passage. Jesus has already appeared, that's the past. And one day in the future, he will appear again. Paul calls this our blessed hope or, or the hope that brings blessing. What kind, of, what kind of blessing is going to, to happen when Jesus comes again? I mean, he's alive. He, he, he's been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He's seated at the Father's right hand on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things. The Bible says one day he will come back. And when he does, what blessings will he bring? No, I don't have time uh, to talk about them all. Uh, you guys are still not listening quickly enough. I, I've talked to you about this before and you need to work on this, okay? But I only have time for two things that I'll tell you today. It's a joke if you're new here, okay? <laughs> two things, two blessings. One, he will bring you the blessing of resurrection. You will be made new. You will be given a brand new, perfect, glorified body. Anybody wanna say amen? That's the blessing that will come when he returns. Number two, God will bring you the blessing of comfort. One day, the Bible says, God will wipe away every tear. One day, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. It is our blessed hope. Christ will come again and he will bring us, his people, to glory. And when you understand that, let me point this out, this should not lead you to live in anxiety. This should lead you to live with expectancy. I mean, some of you, like, you hear about the second coming of Christ and you're, you're like, oh, shoot. That should not be the effect it has on your heart unless you're God's enemy. I mean, if you are in rebellion against God, then you should fear because God is a righteous judge. But if you have trusted in Christ, it should not create anxiety in your heart, but expectancy. You know, I've, um, I've officiated at a lot of weddings this year. I've been to some other weddings. On top of that, there's more that are still to come. You know, we're kind of making up for the last couple of years this year. And I'm thinking about this week about engaged couples. You know, when they've got that point where they're engaged and they've set a date for their, their marriage. And when that is happening, we're in that process, th those engaged couples are not like, oh man, October's coming. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, there's this expectancy. The ring is on the finger, the venue is reserved, the website is up and cranking and bringing in the loot, you know. Um, the, the father of the bride's taking on a second job. Uh, you know, lots going on. They're making decisions, they're, they're planning, they're working it out, they're living in light of the future. Why? Because they know that a day is coming, something in the future will happen, and so they are living accordingly, right? See, we are to live with expectancy, and here's what happens when we do. Our future hope gives us present power. And Paul wants to make this so clear. This happens from start to finish through Jesus. The statement in verse 13 that he makes is one of the most powerful declarations about the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul said Jesus is God. Paul said Jesus is our God. He is our Savior. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then having declared Jesus as Savior, Paul describes his saving work, and he says it like this. He sums it all up. He says, Jesus gave 
himself. He gave himself. And you know, Paul could have said a lot of things. He could have said Jesus suffered. He could have talked about how Jesus obeyed, how Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but he sums it all up by just saying Jesus gave himself. You could preach an entire sermon on just that phrase. But what I wanna point out is what Paul highlights is the thing that should grip your heart. It was Jesus' voluntary sacrifice for you, Jesus' giving of himself, even though none of us deserved it, amen? He gave himself for you. And it wasn't just his obedience, it wasn't just his suffering, it wasn't just his death, it was everything. He gave himself, and you know, the Bible talks about this all through the New Testament. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 1, 4, Christ who gave himself for our sins. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Timothy 2, 6, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. You get the picture, it's about Jesus self-giving. He gave himself for us. And when you know that, and when you bring that into the reality of your life, it changes everything, right? The greatest gift that anyone could give, Jesus gave. He gave you himself and why did he give his, himself? Paul says here, for our redemption and for our purification. I mean, just imagine you lived back then. Last week we talked about bond service. Imagine you lived back then, you were a bond servant. Maybe you were an indentured servant. Maybe you were a servant because of a debt that you got in your life you could never pay off. And so you're, 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 you're living oppressed by this horrible master. And then one day, one day someone comes and they pay your debt. They pay the penalty. They pay the full price for your pardon and you're set free. See, that is only a very small picture of what we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Jesus purchased us. He paid the full price for all of our wickedness, and in doing so, he sets us free. He redeems us, and that changes everything. You might say, how does, how does that affect my life? Let me sum it up like this. This is kind of a familiar way of looking at it, but it's so important to keep in mind. Grace has delivered you from the penalty of sin. Grace is delivering you today from the power of sin. And one day, grace will deliver you from the presence of sin. That's good news, people. It's good news. See, why is Paul telling us all of this? Why is he he going into such detail about grace? And here's the answer. It is so that we can live different lives right now, today. See, the power of Christian living and it's so important you get this, is found between the past and the future, between the finished work of Jesus in the past and the promise of his return in the future. We can look at the past and we can be at peace knowing our past is redeemed. And we can look at the future and we can feel secure because of all the grace has accomplished in the past. And so Paul in this passage, and it's kind of an interesting thing, uh, it's one sentence in the Greek text, just one long sentence. He is telling us in this sentence about these two appearings, these two epiphanies. And he's telling us we need to hold them together. You know, if you're a person who loves music, then, then you know the joy 
of listening to music on headphones, right? Some of you have those really nice, like noise-canceling headphones, or you can just listen to music and not listen to anybody else, right? And uh, for some of us, it's not the headphones, but it's AirPods, earbuds of some kind. And I, I love to like put my AirPods on and just listen to some credible music. But if you're like me, you will also know how like horrible it is when one headphone is not working, right? I mean, it's terrible. Right? It's not what God intended. You know, you, you fly in a plane, you put your headphones on and one of them is not working. You're like, no, no, I need them both to work, you know? You need both of them together. And Paul is saying these two appearances you got to hold them together. You need both. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. And, and it's like some of us are living with just one headphone or one earphone in our ear. You're only thinking about the future, only thinking about what he's done in the past. You're forgetting about the other. Paul says you need to listen to grace in stereo you need to live in the reality of what Jesus has done in the past. You need to live in the hope of what Jesus will do in the future. And you need both of those things in order to live rightly in the present. It is these two truths, that he has come and that he will come again, that gives you power and hope. Some of you, you're foolish right now. You're living in the now. You're ignoring the future but God says in his word to live in the now because of the future. You know, truth of the matter, for some of us, you're just incredibly distracted right now. Some of you, what your distraction is always, it's just it's the next best thing, right? You're always looking for the next best thing. Nothing holds your attention very long. You know, you're, you're dissatisfied with the relationship you're in right now, so you're looking around for the next best thing, or maybe you're dissatisfied with your job. You're just looking around for the next best job. Some people treat church like this. They come to a church. Oh, that's pretty nice. They hang around for a couple years, maybe a year or two, and then they're looking for the next best thing. It's always that. But friends, unless it's Jesus, it's all an illusion. Listen the next best thing is the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the next big thing that's gonna happen in the history of the world. Jesus Christ will return one day visibly, gloriously, and triumphantly to remake the world in peace and justice. And your heart needs to be set on that coming. And you can look forward to that coming. You can have this blessed hope because you are his own special possession. You belong to him because he bought you with a price. And it is that reality, don't forget the end of verse 14, that makes you eager to do good works. It's not that you think your good works are gonna save you. You do those good works because God loves you and God has forgiven you and God has redeemed you and God has saved you. That's why you live the good life. Paul sums it up in verse 15. He says, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And what I hope you've been capturing today as you've listened is that grace does not just bring about a change of mind. It also, it changes your heart. You are not only called to grow in Jesus, you are empowered to grow. The scriptures don't just tell you how to live, they tell you why. You're living for God. You're living the good life. He is making you new. 
And that is so very important. God gives you today an invitation to the good life. He's calling you to that. Do you hear? Do you see? Do you understand? You know what's kind of sad is that some of you are listening to this. And you're going, yeah, I've been listening a long time. I know. You're listening to this. You've been listening a long time. And you know, you're just going to walk out those doors and nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. God gives you this invitation. It's a good invitation because it's a good life. And it's all about grace. And as I wrap this up, I just want to say to you, hear the word of the Lord. Do the word of the Lord. Live the word of the Lord. It's the good life. It's the good life. It's the best life now and forever. It's a good life because he's a good God. Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray together, as we think about what God has said by his word, by his Holy Spirit to each one of us? Let's pray. Father, we ask right now that your grace would change our hearts. Lord, if we need to, that you would wake us up out of lethargy, that you would wake us up out of our our laziness, our distraction. Lord, some of us are, are living under condemnation and we don't need to because you are a God of grace. And Lord, we're, we're trapped in our own sin, our own addictions. Lord, we ask that you would, by your grace, override our, our old, old desires for ungodliness and you would override those with the power of a new love. That we would see you and your beauty and we would love you. Lord, if there are those who are here who... who who feel trapped and they, they don't see a way out, Lord, we pray by your power that they would experience freedom. And Lord, if anyone here uh, is here not knowing you, Lord, I pray that right now by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes, that you would grant them repentance. That you would put their Faith, not in themselves, but in you. I pray, Lord, that they would cry out in their hearts, Jesus, save me, not not because of anything I could do, but because of what you've already done by your grace. Lord, I pray even now that they would experience eternal life. Even now, there would be people who would turn to you and believe in your son, Jesus. We, we pray all of these things, Father, and every other prayer that is being lifted before your throne right now, we, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people say,